Hi everyone, and thanks for tuning in to this very special episode of the Fandom Science Podcast. Today's episode, as you guessed from the title, is on gene doping, which has been kind of a hot topic in recent years as we start to talk more about the limits of human performance and what sports could look like in years to come. And there's probably no one more suited to talk about this than my guest today, Dr. Matthew Porteous, who is not only a practicing medical doctor and a researcher at Stanford University, but he's also a part of the gene and cell doping expert group that's been employed by the World Anti-Doping Agency uh, specifically to help them fight off gene doping and catch athletes who might be using it. So today we talked about what gene doping is, how it works, what kind of genes might be desirable for athletes, do we currently have the technology to do gene doping, and what kind of challenges come in the way of athletes who are considering using this, and what dangers could gene doping have on an athlete's health. As always, I really hope you enjoy this episode and take something useful from it. And if you do, don't forget to share this with someone else who might also enjoy it. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast for the best sports science content. Enjoy. Yeah. Uh, so before we get into the gene doping talk and the hardcore, you know, nitty gritty stuff, uh, I would just like to start by ask, asking you about uh, your work as a medical doctor and specifically you work in gene therapy. So what got you interested in that specific area as opposed to, you know, the various other forms of treatment? Yeah. So um, I am a, uh, a doctor. I'm a pediatric hematologist. So I take care of uh, kids who have uh, blood diseases. And I also uh, take care of kids undergoing uh, bone marrow transplants. Um, but when I was in medical school, um, I started taking care of uh, patients who had genetic diseases of the blood, like sickle cell disease. And it really uh, uh, inspired me to think about well, we knew so much about the genetics of these diseases, but we offered no therapies at the time that was based on that understanding. Mm -hmm. And so it begun a career-long journey of trying to develop what we now know as genome editing as a way of repairing genes that cause disease. Um, and it's uh, been exciting to see the slow and steady progress that then was really accelerated uh, a few years ago by the discovery of the CRISPR-Cas9 system. Uh, which has really enabled us to, to make progress uh, to a point where now we see for uh, serious medical diseases uh, the use of genome editing entering the clinic, and there are going to be even more in the next uh, few years. So what's the CRISPR-9 system? C can you explain a little bit what that means? Yeah, so uh, CRISPR-Cas9 is a description of a, a system that was discovered in bacteria. So just as we have immune systems to... Uh, to pr pr protect us from infections from viruses and bacteria. Um, and, and our immune system is designed to adapt to the various different viruses we might be infected by. As we all know right now, the COVID situation is caused by the problem is we had no pre-existing immunity. And so we have to uh, rely on our adaptive immune system to develop immunity before the virus uh, makes us ill. Um, it was. I, it was surprising and really quite uh, amazing to learn that bacteria have a similar adaptive immune system. And, it, and it, basically what the bacteria do is they 
when they get invaded by uh, a foreign, you know, phage, which is the virus for bacteria, they they basically capture some of the phage DNA um, and then integrate it into its own gene into the bacterial genome and then use those sequences as a way of resisting the next infection. Um, and that structure is called clustered regular, regularly interspersed palindromic repeats, which is the acronym CRISPR. Mm. Now, one of the key proteins in that bacterial defense mechanism is called Cas9 or CRISPR associated protein number nine. And that's the key protein. And so the way the system works is it takes uh, the little fragment of the DNA, turns it into a small RNA molecule, and then complexes the RNA molecule to the Cas9 protein. And the next time the RNA molecule sees a DNA that's identical to the RNA, it activates the Cas9 to cut the DNA. So um, what the amazing discovery was made was is that you can take the guide RNA and the Cas9 protein out of a bacteria and put it into a human cell. And if you program the guide RNA with the right sequence, it can find an identical sequence in the genome and make a cut in the genome by the Cas9 protein. So we've taken a bacterial system and it is so robust it performs essentially the same, has the same biochemical activity in a mammalian cell. Now, the reason that's so important is that when you make a break in the genome of a mammalian cell, a human cell, a break is a very dangerous uh, event because you're separating the chromosome. And so cells have ways of repairing that break, a lot of different ways of repairing the break. But in the process of repairing the break, we can uh, allow, we can modify the genome at the site of the break, either by creating new mutations at the site of the break or by templating the repair of the break so we create specific uh, changes where we could fix a disease-causing mutation. So that was, a, a, I hope, a, a, a good overview of the system. Um, but uh, if, if not, I hope you, I'm sure you can follow up with some questions. No, that makes a lot of sense. So that's essentially how genome editing works or gene therapy is that the, the guided RNA. Well, so yeah, so let, yeah, so let, let's spend a little time there. So gene yeah. therapy is, a, is an umbrella term that describes us using, introducing new genes into a cell to change how the cell behaves. Um, so for example, if a cell was missing, had a broken gene and you, you, you delivered a new gene, it could compensate for the mo broken gene or the missing gene. Gene editing, I consider to be a subform of gene therapy because gene therapy can be done lots of different ways. It doesn't have to be done just by fixing a mutation or adding in a specific change um, into the genome. So genome editing is a precise, specialized form of gene therapy in general. Right. And so given your expertise in, in gene therapy and gene editing and, uh, yeah. and, and this topic, so WADA, the World Anti-Doping Agency, yeah. brought you in as part of a, a group called the Gene and Cell Doping Expert Group. Uh, so That's can right. you describe to us a little bit what that role entails and what you help WADA with? Yeah, so actually, just even stepping back, because of my expertise in gene editing, I've also been involved in conversations about the ethics and 
of, of whether we should do embryo editing as a way of altering that. And I think my uh, input in that um, got the attention of, of, the, of WADA and this, this expert group. Um, and so they invited me to participate because I had this broad expertise in, in gene editing and have been thinking about how it might be applied outside just using to treat patients. Um, so, you know, the group is, uh, I think, uh, a group that was convened many years ago. Um, I'm just a new, newest member. Um, because they recognize that one way that gene doping might occur, or one way that doping might occur is through gene doping. Um, and they wanted to convene people who had expertise to think about, well, how might that be done? And how might you design ways of detecting it if it was done? And so they wanted to convene a group of experts to help them think through both of those issues. And so... Let me just jump back a little bit. So you're yeah. talking about your your input on the embryonic gene editing, yeah, yeah, and so yeah. that's what caught their attention. So what was your uh, your input on that? Well, you know my my uh, my input, and you know the conversation is still. I'm just one person in a much broader conversation, just like the the gene doping conversation. Is that um, currently the technology is not good enough to allow us to safely and effectively do embryo editing. Um, it's maybe good, it's good enough to start testing in what we call somatic cells, so cells that would not be passed along to future generations. But it's clearly, and actually more and more data is coming out, that it's just not good enough for embryo editing to think about using this. Now, that being said, I think, and, and some people have said, okay, it's not good enough, so it shouldn't be done. Technically, it's not good enough. I think where people are thinking about, though, is as well, it's, it's not technically good enough in 2020, but what happens when it does become, or if it becomes technically good enough, is this something that we should do? And you know, lots of people have weighed in, and I think there's some variations and about, no, no, even if it became technically Good enough. This crosses a boundary where we should never do it. Um, I am on the side that there are a very small number of couples who might be at risk of having a child with a serious genetic disease, and in those very, very rare circumstances, you might consider doing this. Mm -hmm. um, but I would not see this as something that would be generally uh, applicable or, or something that we should be using. Right. So it's mostly just a, as like a preventative measure for possible yeah. diseases or, right. Exactly. Right. And so what about WADA? Is that similar to WADA? For example, what I mean by my question is, has gene doping been done already and the technology is good enough or did they bring you in because in the future it's inevitable for it to happen and so they want to get ahead of the game? Well, as far as I understand is we have no documented instance where gene doping has been used. Um, of course, what's the saying? Uh, lack of knowledge of an unknown doesn't know, mean that it hasn't occurred. What we know is, is that it has not been detected yet. Um, I actually think that gene editing is probably not going to be the first way that gene doping is tried. 
there are other ways of delivering uh, genes that are more advanced that people might try. Um, I think that my personal opinion is, is that uh, I suspect it has not, I suspect it has been tried, but not successfully. Um, their early years of gene therapy, people did some sort of, in retrospect, even at the time they were perceived as quite uh, crazy experiments. Um, and I suspect probably people have tried, but are not using the, the state-of-the-art techniques to get any effectiveness. That, but that's just my supposition. But that doesn't mean that in the near future that somebody might, or, or uh, an organization or a non-state-sponsored group or even a state-sponsored group might put together a team to, to do this. And I think what WADA is rightly doing is thinking ahead about how one would monitor and detect that um, if it did happen. So when you say that you think there's other ways of gene doping uh, aside from yeah. gene editing, what do you what do you mean by that? So so there, there there's two major ways of doing gene therapy right now. One is to take cells out of the body, your own cells out of the body, um, which can really only be really done with blood cells, um, although it can be done with skin cells to some extent and use what we call a lentiviral vector, which is a virus in which you've removed the viral genes and you've put in your gene of interest. And the lentiviral vector gets into the cell and integrates that gene into the genome somewhere. We don't know where, but it goes in. So now the cell has a new gene. So one could imagine you could take blood cells out, introduce a new gene, then give the patient's own cells back, and now they would have cells that might be making a new protein. And people have done that uh, in gene therapy for uh, people with genetic diseases and it works. And it's actually one of the ways that if you've heard of CAR T therapy, it's a way of giving T cells better, a better ability to kill cancer. Mm -hmm. so, um, so that's been working in, in diseases. And so people are thinking about, well, what if you substituted a, a gene that was designed to help a genetic disease or a disease and instead put in a gene that might help performance. Um, the other major approach to gene therapy is using a different type of virus called AAV. And AAV is a virus that all, most many of us have been infected by and we never knew it. So it's not considered a pathogenic virus in humans. Um, and again, you take out the normal genes in AAV and you replace them with the genes you want. And then you make a large quantity and you can um, put the virus into the bloodstream and the, and the virus will then circulate and get into cells and the new gene will be uh, in the cell. Now, it won't go into the genome. It'll stay outside the DNA, but it can still make new protein. Mm -hmm. And again, AAV has now been... It's been approved to treat a, a serious disease of the eye, and there are approvals on the way for different um, diseases like clotting disorders, and it's been, include, it's been approved for a um, genetic disease of brain development called uh, spinal muscular atrophy. So it would be a way of 
in the body, delivering a new gene to many cells throughout the body. So if you thought you had a gene that would might increase your performance by having more of it, this would be a way to deliver it to the body. Right. And so as far as we know so far, there's three possible methods. So the first two that you mentioned yeah. have already been done in gene therapy. The other yeah. one is genome editing, which could be the future. Uh, could be. Of, oh, yeah. Could yeah. be, yeah, of gene doping. Um, so we just talked about introducing genes into the body that might be beneficial for performance. Yeah. Uh, from your knowledge, what are some specific genes in the human DNA that might be desirable for gene dopers uh, to, to introduce into their bodies? And what do they do? Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I think I don't want to speculate too much because, of course, we have to be careful. People are smarter than me, but I don't want to give anyone any ideas. But certainly right. some obvious ones that are out there is we know that long distance, you know, endurance athletes uh, have used erythropoietin to increase their red blood cell mass so that their endurance is better. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously the Tour de France ended this, this weekend and it was an incredibly exciting event. And, you know, bicyclists and cross-country skiers and long-distance runners all can benefit by having a um, higher red blood cell mass because you can carry more oxygen. So, you know, we know that, that uh, dopers have used extra erythropoietin in different forms to try to create their extra red blood cell mass. Mm -hmm. And we know that the detection methods though are getting, are very good at, at being able to distinguish between whether you're just using your own erythropoietin that we all make, it's a natural hormone um, that our kidneys make versus somebody who's giving themselves extra. So you could imagine a gene doper thinking about, well, instead of giving myself the hormone uh, at regular intervals, I'll give myself a gene and just have it continuously produce uh, erythropoietin. Um, so that, that's one idea. So many of the same proteins that dopers are using uh, periodically, like erythropoietin, uh, one could think about instead of doing it peri you know, periodically, giving it once and having it there all the time. Um, of course, if, if a doper used an erythropoietin gene, um, it could be detected in the same way that we detect the periodic erythropoietin. So it might be very hard to see that, uh, to, to figure out, you'd have to, a, a gene doper would have to figure out how to make it so it looked like it was natural erythropoietin, but that's very hard to do. Because if you express natural erythropoietin, if you express extra erythropoietin, you'll suppress the natural erythropoietin, and so you may not get anywhere. Right, and so that's that's one is is um, EPO or EPO uh, that could yeah. be desirable. Uh, so there's a, a few more out there, and and they're out yeah. in, in you know books and stuff like that. And so it, yeah. you know, if an idiot like yeah. me knows them, then I'm sure an athlete. Yeah, knows yeah, them yeah, exactly. Uh, but uh, so for example, like actin, the the, the gene. Uh, acting yeah, with myosin think, and ACE. Like, what do you think about those and their potential? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't think actin can be there. By the way, we also realize that uh, EPO and human growth hormone um, at too high levels are dangerous. Mm -hmm. And so for a lot of the... Sorry, I have a little puppy. Oh, that's uh, not <laughs> uh, so for a lot of these, the, the gene doper would have to worry about 
making enough to be useful, but not making too much that they would end up uh, causing short-term harm. Now, we know that one of the uh, real challenges is that athletes are willing to compromise their long-term health for short-term benefit. So I think the... the, Sorry, let me just deal with... Hey, 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 hey. Um, I think she's barking at the leaf blower. Um, um, is, is the, in, in normal medical practice, you would, most patients would not compromise too much on short-term benefit if they knew that was going to shorten their lifespan in any certain significant way. But it's clear from surveys of athletes that their, their calculus is very different. Mm-hmm. They'll, they will comp, they, they, they state that they'll compromise that. So, um, so I think, but the fact is, is some of these genes that are considered, you might consider actually have short-term harm as well. So getting the dose right is going to be very, if you were going to do gene doping, it's not obvious how you could assure that you would get the right dose. Um, so one of the, one of the most essential, you know, things to consider, uh, we talk about it in sports science all the time, uh, is like the interaction between genetics and the environment. You know, we're talking yeah. about nature and nurture. Um, yeah. And simply having a gene doesn't mean that it's, you know, that gene is going to be expressed and it's going to take its effect if the right environment is not yeah. there. Do you mind just explaining a little bit about the interaction between the gene and the environment and how that might come into play for gene dopers? Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's no... You could have, I personally, this is my personal view. I'm not speaking on behalf of WADA mm-hmm. or anyone else when I say this. And everything I'm saying here follows that caveat. I'm just speaking my own personal, uh, about my own personal beliefs. Um, I think to be, say, an Olympic level athlete, you have in your genome a variety of uh, variants that in and of themselves, they don't make you a great athlete, but in combination give you a higher probability of being able to perform better in whatever sport you are, whether it's endurance racing, whether it's strength, whether it's coordination. Um, but that, that genetic makeup might give you, you know, a probability that with the right training and environment, you can realize the potential. So, the way I see it is, is that we all are born with uh, a genetic potential. Um, and actually, I don't believe that it's a, I do believe that we all have our variants that make us, would make us great in whatever, the, the genetic variants that might make us a great athlete might be just the wrong variants to make us a great musician or a great thinker or a great communicator. Mm-hmm. That they may, they may be contradictory. Um, but that just gives you a, a chance of having that, that it's still the environment and your ability to, uh, train correctly, to eat correctly in, in this case of athletics, that's going to allow you to realize that potential. So it's only a potential. Right. Because, um, yeah, no, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Well, you know, and of course the example is, is no matter how much I would want to be an NBA basketball player, I'm five foot 10. It's just not going to happen. Right. So, you know, it, 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 it gives you one, the potential, but you still have to put in all the hard work, um, you know, and 
all all the things you need to do to to make your environment great to realize that potential. So are you going to follow up with a question? Yeah, yeah. So the, the reason I was asking that question is because so I've read about a few studies in mice, for example, where they introduce genes and um, they cause that, you know, genome editing. Yeah. But then the gene itself doesn't doesn't like uh, activate it, doesn't express itself or doesn't come into fruition because the environment, the, the mice did not grow up with that gene. So they haven't had yeah. time to interact with the environment and express it. So is that something that athletes also have to consider and worry about when they're, you know, considering doping? Well, that's exactly right. Um, it could be that the effect of a gene uh, on your potential for athletic performance comes uh, during a, uh, a certain phase in your development, a window, let's call it, um, and that after that window, its effect is not, not there. So even though you say, see a variant of a gene that's enriched in gold medal winners in a certain sport, it may not be that they actually need that variant then they needed it when they were 12. Um, so absolutely, um, the developmental biology of performance and the role of genes and environment could absolutely be there. Mm -hmm. yep. And I guess it's kind of like, uh, just any other form of doping. Like even if you, let's say you take anabolic steroids, um, yeah. sure. They're not genes that are expressing, but, um, without the right training and eating and, and everything yeah. is just not gonna. Well, and then the other thing, sorry, I realized I forgot to say one other thing to your first question is that yeah. <clears throat> the human body um, has incredible what we call homeostasis. That is, it keeps things in balance. So like I talked about with erythropoin and EPO, if I, if I gave myself extra EPO, it would suppress my endogenous EPO because my body would sense I have more than enough red blood cells. And so, that is also part of the reason that sometimes these mouse studies sort of show there was no effect is the mouse got the gene, but it compensated by downregulating another pathway and so you ended up right where you were. The other issue that you, you're raising is sometimes you put a gene into a cell and the, the cell turns it off because it's like, this isn't good. I don't need this. And so it turns it off. And that's also going to be a very real, so you could go through the entire process and the cell just says, no, this isn't natural. I'm, sh I'm shutting you down. And mm -hmm. cells do that a lot. So there's a lot of barriers, it seems like, for an athlete who's considering to cheat using gene doping. Like there's a lot of obstacles in their way yes. uh, for them to successfully do it. I think that's correct. Yeah. Um, yeah. I is think that's them, right. Is one of them the, the viral injections? Like, because as you mentioned earlier, you can introduce the genes into the the cell by using a virus. Um, yep. Could that in its in itself be a dangerous process? Absolutely. So we know that um, several patients who've gotten the virus have died from wow. the immune reaction to the virus. And we also know that you can't, you will have to give, just like every drug, let's call the virus a drug. If you go give too little, it doesn't have an effect. Uh, if you, and to make enough of this virus to give to somebody actually is not an easy thing. You can't do it in your garage. Mm -hmm. um, it takes um, really specialized expertise 
to, to potentially make enough virus to even have an effect. And at the doses that have an effect, uh, you can cause toxicity. So for example, um, I mentioned the virus AAV, uh, which can be used to deliver genes in the body and it works quite well. Well, it turns out that about 40% of adults around, a little more sometimes, less other times, depending on who's measuring, already have pre-existing immunity to the AAV. So if if you if I if I had an antibody and I had um, T cells which help fight in viruses, and you gave me that AAV to deliver uh, uh, a, a gene doping gene, I might have an overwhelming inflammatory response to that virus and get either, if I was lucky, I would just get super sick. And if I was unlucky, I could die from it because I got so sick. So you're right. There's, it's not just as simple as putting a gene in a virus and giving it to somebody and, you know, at voila, it works. There's so many barriers to thinking about this. Yeah, and the process is a lot more complicated too compared to, let's say, HGH, where I'm sure you yeah. can get some, you know, uh, crooked doctor to give you some injections. You can, you yeah. know, easily do it. Not, but not, not yeah, in this yeah. case. Yeah. Yeah. No, you you cannot go down to your local doctor. Now, the other thing that the um, that the so a lot, like HGH and EPO, uh, just to take two well-known examples were of course approved drugs for serious medical conditions. Mm -hmm. And what they've been done is they've been repurposed for athletic dopers. Um, they weren't developed for athletes to use, they were developed for patients to use, and then they've been repurposed. And that's why you can go to your doctor. Although HGH, you have to have a special license to prescribe. Uh, I don't have a special, even though an MD, I can't prescribe HGH. I don't have that special license. Um, right. Now, doctors can get around that and so on mm -hmm. and so forth. Um, so, you know, one of the things people, when I look at the gene therapies that are developing for uh, patients, none of them are obviously, uh, none of them would help an athlete. They're, they, they wouldn't be like, oh, if I just got that, that would make me perform better. Mm -hmm. So right now, I'm not aware of any gene therapy developing being developed for a disease that actually could be easily repurposed for athletes right and and the the ones that i've i've seen and come across are yeah. um ones again like that help with um, medical disorders and stuff like that yeah. that could potentially be taken advantage of um, yeah. you know, some of them that increase uh, muscle mass for people with muscular yeah. dystrophy, dystrophy. Yep. you could use that or, you know, for blood yep. pressure, people have blood pressure. You want to, um, dilate the, the, the vessels to, you know, deliver more oxygen. They use that. Okay. So that must be where the ACE is coming from. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's yeah. The, yeah. Right. Um, that would be a very subtle effect. I have to admit, uh, mm -hmm. because again, homeostasis is a very powerful, our kidneys and our brains and our tissues sense how much blood is flowing to them. And you could try to dilate them, but the body may just say, nope, I, I, I don't need that much blood. I'm going to dial it back. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, now, now the issue of muscular dystrophy is the one that's closest is people are working on, um, 
therapies that prevent the degeneration of muscles that occurs in muscular dystrophy. Um, and one, people have uh, speculated that that same therapy could be repurposed in somebody with normal muscles to make them bigger. Now, mm -hmm. the other gene that's out there is a, what, and I'm sure you have heard about it, is this gene called myostatin, where if you mutate myostatin, your muscles get very big and you, every, you know, I'm sure you and your listeners have all gone on the internet and looked at myostatin cow, myostatin defective cows and myostatin defective babies. Yeah. It's not clear to me that that's healthy at all. Uh, and because it's so uncontrolled, uh, it's not clear to me that while it looks, you know, the cows look pretty impressive, uh, no evidence that they're actually going to be better than a cow who worked out well. Right, right. To use cows. Yeah, yeah. So what does the myostatin do exactly? Like, what's its mechanism in the body that causes this? Yeah, I'm not a mus muscle physiologist uh, right. ex expert, but generally myostatin, so so the way we can break it, myo means muscle, statin means inhibitory. So what it is is a protein that inhibits muscle growth. And that actually allows our muscles to, I think, be appropriately sized for humans. But you remove the break, so you remove the statin, and now there's no inhibition on muscle growth, and your muscles will grow beyond what, what's probably healthy. Right, right. But you're right about, uh, you know, simply increasing muscle size doesn't mean that you can put that to use right. in, a, in an effective way. You know what I mean? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So if we go back just a little bit to catching the, the people who might use gene doping. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier, um, if they use gene doping to increase uh, erythropoietin, then you could be, you could use the same method that you already use to catch EPO doping yeah. for that. Um so is that going to be the primary method of catching athletes who gene dope? Is it just like to look for the same biomarkers or something? Or is there going to be like a, another detection method that you have to come up with? I think, you know, again, I don't want to go into too many details here. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the way WADA is thinking about this is, of course, you want to develop redundant mechanisms to try to detect people. Mm -hmm. And what we know is, is that in patients who have gone through gene therapy, um, they've actually, they leave a signature that they've gone through gene therapy um, that can be detected. Now, usually when somebody goes through gene therapy, it's not a secret. So we're, we don't care much about that signature. Um, but I think we will, we are learning from those patients what the signature looks like. And now if somebody didn't want to get caught, the question is, is can we from their blood, and probably going to have to be from their blood, see that same signature? So I would say uh, from a, in a, uh, hopefully that's a specific enough, but mm -hmm. still vague enough idea of how, how WADA and those of us advising them are thinking about um, how you might see whether somebody has undergone gene dopamine. The, the gene itself, we've talked about some candidates out there. But one could imagine you can't think of all the different candidate genes that one might use. And so certainly gene-specific techniques probably should be developed, but you also want to have techniques that don't, they don't care about the gene itself, but they care about detecting the process. Right. All right. 
I won't I won't uh, follow up on the signatures because but maybe I'll wait like 10 years until it's already Yeah, yeah, you'll then. start hearing about them. Yeah, and then yeah. I'll start hearing about it. Um yeah. but know that that I was watching Icarus the other day. I don't know if you've seen it on Netflix. Yeah, I um, haven't seen it. No. Oh, you should. You should. It's uh, yeah. it's about Wada and and catching the the Russian team that that was doping. Oh yeah. Um yeah, and they were talking about all the detection methods stuff like that. So that got me Yeah. That got me yeah. wondering. Uh so when it comes to uh PEDs, uh, you know, there's a, a long list of banned substances, obviously, but there's yeah. also a list of prohibited substances like um, special cases, for example, like testosterone replacement therapy. Why right. will allow it if you need it? HGH will allow it. Yeah, if you need it. Yeah. Yep. Do you foresee in the future, you know, when gene editing is actually efficient and it's working well, that maybe WADA will be like, hey, yeah, this is a list of genes that you're allowed to as far as, like, as long as it's monitored and it's for yeah. medical purposes and all that, or do you think that's too far of a? Well, so my feeling, and this goes a little bit about to to the issue of embryo editing, is is that there's a I I sort of like the concept that you might consider using gene edit if let's say it becomes safe and effective, you might considering developing editing up to what's normal, you know so. Uh, but that that creating changes that um, go beyond quote normal would not be supported. Um, and by normal, I define normal as as the variants that are common in the human population. And we can discuss what common means, but mm-hmm. I think it's something that we all sort of have a gut instinct. If if five people in the world have it, that's not common. If right. you know, you know, the question is is if uh, say 30% of uh, people in China have it, is that common or not? Well, we can discuss whether that's common or not. It might be, might not be. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that I think we, we really have to be careful about is, is you talk, you, we, we started out talking a little bit about gene environment interaction. There's also gene-gene interactions, mm-hmm. which that genes don't develop variants in a vacuum. They develop them in the context of the other variants that are going on. And so even if you said, oh, this variant looks like it might confer some benefit, what you don't know is does it only confer benefit in one circumstance but not in another? And that circumstance could be the other genes or it could be another environment. And so I think, again, another cautionary note that looking at a gene or a variant of a gene in isolation, you could, uh, it could be very misleading. Right. And so introducing one gene could suppress another, for example, or cause it to mutate in a, in a uh, harmful way? Well, could be, but I'm more thinking about, um, uh, let's say um, you have a gene that, um, Again, let's just use EPO as an example. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you say, okay, there's a variant in the EPO receptor that makes it more active, um, and there are variants out there. We know that. We know those. Um, what if you? But what if that you only can carry that active EPO variant if you have another variant that downregulates the system? That homeostasis idea. So now if I don't have that 
variant that downregulates the system, and now I put in the EPO receptor variant that upregulates the system, all of a sudden I end up with a hematocrit of 60 and I have a heart attack because mm. I don't have the right brakes that go along with the right accelerator. Right. Is that does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. Again, like you said, the genes aren't operating in a, in a vacuum; they're operating in the context of all the other genes surrounding them that, right, that are interacting with each other. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So, given all those uh, barriers and obstacles and like potential dangers and the gene doping, yeah. um, do you, in your opinion, uh, not necessarily as a as a WADA consultant or anything, but in your yeah. opinion, do you do you foresee genome editing or let's say do you do you foresee gene doping as actually being the future of doping? Or is that something like we glorify in movies and books and you like to think <laughs> about as like this cool thing? I I th- here's I think it will happen. I think there will be people I think there will happen as as much as I've described all the barriers and challenges and risks and to it, the the fact that uh, I think it will happen. And I even think that it will, um, it may even turn out that in a small number of people, they get some benefit from it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think that it won't, maybe I'm just being an optimist here and I don't ap- appreciate, you know, but I also think it probably won't be widespread because of all those barriers and all the um the challenges whereas i think you know in all honesty while it's inconvenient to give yourself small doses of a performance enhancing drug over and over again it's actually safer and more effective and allows you to tailor your therapy better whereas gene doping is really a one you don't get to really control the dose you don't know what you're going to get out of it i think it's going to be very hard to 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 dial in just the right amount. Whereas when you're using these more quote standard forms, you can dial in the right amount for you at the right time, to be honest. Right. 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 So, yeah. Yeah. It just seems like uh, when you were saying that you think in the future, yes, it, it might happen. It will happen. And that just goes back to, I feel like every medical advancement that happens uh, as far as like therapy and curing diseases, there's someone on the side watching and like copying what's going on so that they can apply it to, to doping. Yep. And I guess if, if uh, medical advances keep happening in, in gene editing, gene therapy, then yep. that, that could Yeah, be- and that's why I think, I think you're right. But that's why I think, you know, WADA and others are doing the right thing by thinking ahead and saying, okay, we, we can't, we shouldn't rely on the fact that it's going to be challenging to say that it won't happen, but instead think about, all right, how do we put in redundant detection mechanisms so that if we miss with one, we pick it up with another. Right. Right. So let's, uh, let's end on a little bit of a positive note after all talking right. about, you know, cheating and doping and, um, <laughs> and we'll yeah. just ask you a couple of questions about your medical practice and, and your work sure. with outside of WADA. Uh, yeah. So in your medical practice, in you and your lab at Stanford, you guys work on uh, gene therapy, obviously, to treat diseases. So do you mind explaining like what kind of diseases you guys are working on and, and what kind of results yeah. uh, you're seeing? Sure. I know. I'm excited about that. <laughs> um, so like I said, I, I, I got involved um, with the field because of um, meeting patients and taking care of patients who were born 
through you know no fault of their own specific uh, uh, variants that cause a disease. So I, I like to be really careful about you know I think there are variants that um, you know we all carry variants. If your genome and my genome are mostly the same, but we have subtle variants. Even my genome in one cell is very different than my genome in another cell. Um, and you develop new variants. But there are certain variants that don't just give probability of disease or performance. There are certain variants that are so detrimental, it leads inevitably to a disease. And so one of the most common variants that people know of is a disease, is a, is a, is a mutation in the beta globin gene that causes sickle cell disease. So sickle cell disease is a genetic disease of the blood. It's autosomal recessive, which means you have to have, both copies have to have this, the mutation. And when you do, your red blood cells, um, instead of being able to effectively deliver oxygen to all the tissues in the body, can become stiff and they don't get through the blood vessels. It's exactly the opposite of what a gene doper, an athletic doper would want to do. Mm -hmm. It is by no way do they want to do this. So these patients get these blockages and so they end up with uh, all their organs in their body being damaged because the red blood cells aren't, being, uh, aren't functioning correctly. So what we've been working on for many years is can we take the patient's own blood stem cells so the blood stem cells give rise to the red blood cells. Red blood cells, as you know, don't live forever. They only live, you know, for a couple months, a couple few months. Um, and then they have to be replenished from the stem cell. So our, our idea is, is let's take out the patient's own stem cells, fix the mutation that causes the, the, the disease, and then give them back. And we've been working on that many years, and we hope that um, we'll treat our first patient using that in the, in the beginning part of 2021. Uh, so, oh, so that soon. That soon. Yeah. Um, wow. we're, we're putting together all our paperwork and, uh, you know, of course, before you start a trial like that, it has to be reviewed by in the U S by the FDA, um, to make sure that the risk benefit is appropriate for the patients you might enroll. Mm -hmm. Um, so it, we, we think, so it's been a career long, um, endeavor, um, but of course, if it works for sickle cell disease, uh, let me re, re let me rephrase that when it works for sickle cell disease, cause that's I have right, to be an right. optimist about it. Yeah. Um, there are hundreds, if not thousands of other genetic diseases that one might be able to fix the same way. Mm -hmm. uh, this patient has this defect that causes their immune system not to work. This patient has this, uh, defect that causes their, them to bleed. This patient has this that causes uh, them to be prone to infections. And now we can go in and do the same process. It's like, okay, we know your mutation. Let's fix it in your own cells, give your own cells back. And now you'll be able to fight infections or be able to, to make sure you don't bleed or excessively. So it, it, I, you know, I think optimistically, and again, you know, been working on this for a while, this, this, I think we're really at the start. There's been successes in gene therapy, and the, and uh, there'll be continue to be more successes. And gene editing will we're going to start seeing even more successes. And this this idea that that cells, our own cells, are the drug. 
mm-hmm. um, is something that's going to happen, I think, in the ne- even more and more over the next uh, 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Um, so we won't think about a small molecule or a protein as a drug, but we'll think about the cell as a drug. So I, I think, you know, going back to the gene doping idea, so now we're going to think about, well, can people use cells as drugs? Mm-hmm. And of course, we have to think about how one might uh, to, to enhance athletic per- performance. So, yeah. Right, right. But it's very exciting to, to be at this cusp where we can, you know, really take people who have diseases that shorten their lifespan, cause frequent, you know, pain and suffering and think about using gene editing to, to fix a mutation and maybe even cure them. So uh, mm-hmm. we'll see. We'll see. No, because that that topic is is so uh, interesting, and I have someone very close to me with uh, with rheumatoid arthritis, and um, yep. and so yep. obviously the the causes of, of you know what caused the the, the disease yep. to happen is unknown so far, but. Uh, her rheumatologist was telling her like she thinks it's that uh, so she experienced like um, a death in the family and she thinks that that is actually what it caused the gene to express itself causing rheumatoid arthritis to to happen and so to think about all the you know the potential of gene therapy to to cure all the different diseases is actually really you know it's a it's a very positive thing to to think about yeah and i think rheumatoid arthritis is an interesting example um in the sense that probably there, there are, there's, there's a few people who have mutations where it's inevitable they get an autoimmune diseases, but most of us live in a situation where we have a probability of getting an autoimmune disease or not. And then a trigger or some environmental event pushes us over the edge. And so as genome editing gets better and safer, what we might do then is say, okay, you have a high probability of getting an autoimmune disease. Maybe what we can do is reduce your probability by changing some, by specifically changing a variant or a, a variant in a, a specific gene. Right. Um, right. Yeah. But of no, course, the... the same variants that might predispose you to an autoimmune disease might be the same variants that allow you to fight SARS-CoV-2 mm-hmm. and COVID better. Mm-hmm. So there's a, we always have to be weighing maybe mm-hmm. in one situation it's bad, but in another situation it's good. And until we know that it's often hard to, mm-hmm. uh, I think, I believe in being humble. Yeah. Yeah. So w- what was that, uh, this uh, disease? I think that if you have it, you're immune to malaria or maybe that gene. That if you... Yeah. So sickle cell disease. Yeah. So that's, yeah. It, that's it. So if you have one copy of the sickle cell gene and one non-sickle cell gene, uh-huh. you, are, you still get malaria, uh, but you're less likely to die from malaria mm. than if you don't have if you don't have it. So the sickle cell gene we call S and the non-sickle cell gene we call A. Mm. So if you're AA and I'm AA, if I got malaria, I would have a certain probability of dying from malaria. Um, actually, as an adult, I've never gotten malaria before. As an adult, I would have a very high probability if I got malaria at this age. Hmm. Um, but if you're AS, 1A, 1S gene, my probability of dying from malaria goes way down. Now, the the problem is, is if you're SS, you have sickle cell disease, and you're even more susceptible to malaria. So it's kind of this weird shape, right. but you know what I mean? Yeah. The intermediate yeah. state is good, but the two ends aren't as good with respect to malaria. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's just, just malaria is such a common parasite all over the world 
the human population carries this S allele and some other variants to protect against malaria. Mm -hmm. So one last uh, question before we wrap up. I just want to get your thoughts on um, there's a lot of companies out there that, uh, you know, they ask you to send a, um, you know, yeah. sample of saliva or something that's their DNA. And obviously you pay quite a bit of money for it and they give yeah. you, a, you know, a list of yeah. what you're susceptible to and whatnot. Uh, and your yeah. expertise, are those, you know, for the most part, are those legit? Are those trustworthy or, or do you think they're kind of uh, taking advantage of people? Um, I, th I think most of the companies are legit in the mm -hmm. sense that they're giving you the results that are true. Um, the interpretation of those results are much more difficult and subtle than perhaps uh, the companies let on. Right. Um, that, as I said, what they're reporting on is variants that increase your probability or not of having certain diseases. But humans are not very good with that probabilistic thinking about their health. Uh, we're, we tend to be black and white and, and what they're reporting on are not black and white. They're very subtle, you know, you're, you're predisposed or not. The, um, the other thing though, I think is that they, they're also sitting on a gold mine now because we've paid them mm -hmm. and now they have a bank of what the human genetic variation is yeah, yeah. and we paid them for their, for their bank. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I, that, uh, it's a good business model. Yeah, but I, very, I, yeah. So do I trust that the results they tell you are true? Yeah, I trust the, the, the sequencing, the DNA results are true. Do I fully trust how they're going to use that data? I'm not sure. Mm, right. Yeah, I mean, if you if you thought Facebook has your data, wait until you see what those guys have in there. Oh, I know. Exactly. Yeah, yeah that's... And that's wait, until, wait until Facebook or them merge and then... Mm. Yeah. yeah, that's the next thing. Yeah. That's the next step. Awesome. Well, again, thanks so much for your for your time, and I really appreciate it. Um, just wonder if, you, if there's any, you know, can people follow you on Twitter? Follow the lab? Uh, follow your work somewhere? Is there a website they can track? I, I'm or? not on Twitter, Facebook, or any of those. So, uh, yeah, I'm not easy to follow. But um, you know, hopefully, as our 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 programs to treat patients uh, move along, it'll people will learn about it. But yeah, I don't have a natural place to follow. Sorry about that. No, that's a that's a smart idea. Stay away from all that. Nonsense. Thank you. Well, thank you for yeah. inviting me to your podcast. This has been a very fun conversation. I appreciate it. No, thank it. you. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks.